And we are back. How's everybody doing out there? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in to the Focus Compounding Podcast. Jeffrey Gannon over there. How are you doing over there? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing great. We want to thank everybody for listening to us. Of course, this is the audio part of our business. If you do want to get access to our investment idea portion or side of our business, that's at focuscompounding.com. And if you do decide to sign up, uh, sign up using the podcast promo code, which is podcast, then they'll take $10 off your subscription price indefinitely as long as you stay a member. And it's an ever-growing community of like-minded investors looking to compound some wealth, right? Yep. So it's a lot of fun. So today we're going to be actually talking about something that we haven't really hit too much on or talked much about. Um, I don't think ever. I, we've yeah, you've written about it or we've written about yeah, it. Yeah, we've written about it, but I don't think we've ever but, but never talked about it on podcasts as far as I remember. Yeah, and that's mental models. Okay. And mental models is something that was sort of popularized probably by Charlie Munger. He's Definitely a big advocate of it. Yeah. Um, obviously, he wasn't probably the originator of it, but obviously he talks about it a lot. But mental models in their simplest form. I don't even know how to describe it. What do you What do you even think about it? The way I think about it is it's sort of, he describes it as something that just makes life a lot easier. And it's that life's one big interrelatedness and you're able to connect the dots mm-hmm. um, from a bunch of different industries and a bunch of different um, businesses and yeah. connect it sort of with these models or yeah, just models to think about life. Thinking. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He says that he thinks that you should have a lattice work is what he calls, okay. which is where you use a lot of these models and that you sort of connect all the dots um, you know, with them. And it's just a way to think about life. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written about them or he hasn't, I think he actually, he's talked, talked about, about, he's them, talked yeah. about them, which has been of course written and put it in books. So yeah. It's in like book form. It, yeah. yeah. Um, good book, seeking wisdom from, uh, that's a good book from that's Darwin to Munger. Um, uh, poor Charlie's Almanac. That's probably the best one. That's yeah. a book that you should reread. I say it, reread it once a year. Yeah. And that's I, a good coffee table book. Yeah. To- oh yeah. my gosh. Totally. It <laughs> looks like a good coffee table book, but I reread it once a year. And seriously, it's one of those, um, you know, one of one of those types of books where every time you reread it, you take something new away from it. And that's mm-hmm. how you know the material is good. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so he, he's always talking about these mental models and it's pretty cool because you could relate it to investing. Uh-huh. And uh, um, so I'm just going to kind of name off some that I thought would be kind of relevant and we could just sort of chat about it, maybe give your thoughts okay, on it. Okay, where are these coming from? <laughs> what are these mental, are these Charlie Munger mental models or are these just in general? Well, you're just going to have to wait and see. All right, we'll see. I don't okay. know. I mean, he's talked about them, but um, I sort of am a copycat and pour, pull a bunch from a bunch of different people. All right. Um, and actually, the first one that we'll talk about is one that you've written about publicly okay. on Focus Compounding, and that's market power. Yes, I did talk about that. So, Definitely a mental model. Yeah. So what is market power to you, and how do you sort of think about it? Okay, so um, market power to me is uh, basically the um, ability to you know raise prices uh, for your product without your um, customers threatening to stop doing business with you or flip it around the other side mm-hmm. uh, to demand lower prices from your suppliers without your suppliers wanting to leave you. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's both sides of it. And of course, a company basically makes the spread between those two things. So um, if you want to call it pricing power, whatever you want to call it, yeah. it's the ability... Um, to not be a pure commodity. You know, uh, Buffett's talked about Berkshire Hathaway. He said, you know, no matter how good the relationships are with the salespeople and, you know, they, they take them out to dinner and whatever. Yeah. Um, and they've been with them 20 years buying their, their, the, the business was, su- um, linings for the inside of a man's suit, uh-huh. not the suit itself, but the lining. Yeah. 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 And, uh, if they asked for, you know, a, a penny more, um, a yard or whatever, they said, no, no way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's sort of the way I think about it. Obviously, this comes from, I guess you're going to categorize it like the economics mm-hmm. type of um, 
type of mental models, but I think that's the way I think about it. Uh, yeah. Sort of like pricing power, I think. Sure. And it's related, I guess, to like Michael Porter stuff. Um, there, he, he's written some books and there's been some books written about him, which just talks about sort of competitive forces and things like that. Yeah. And I guess it kind of relates in a big way to, to what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the best way to describe it is you can't really, I guess, mental models and more specifically like market power and the next one we're going to talk about. To me, it's something that doesn't necessarily show up in the accounting or it doesn't show sure. up in a 10K. You sort of have to kind of put the pieces together. Right. And I think that comes from knowing the business and kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe being a consumer of the business or see how consumers yeah. interact and, and react to certain things that happen within the business. Yeah. You're almost talking more about like psychology and, yeah. and game theory and things like that than you are talking about uh, financial statements. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, the next one is Mindshare. Okay. Which I think is another good one that obviously you probably can't find in a 10K. Yeah. Um, so like when I say um, soda, what do you think? Coke. So there you go, right? No. Now there's some people not far from where we're living right now, where we're talking right now, that think Dr. Pepper. Oh, yeah, because... But of, then in yeah, another part HQ of the country, here. there's no one that thinks Dr. Pepper. I mean, they know it exists and they'll yeah. drink it, but it has no special place in their mind. Do you think... One thing is always kind of... Um, maybe it's just my generation, but mm-hmm. Warren and Charlie are always talking about when people think Coca-Cola, they think happy times. Yeah. Like because of the commercials. Right. When I think of Coca-Cola, I don't ever think of like <laughs> happy times true? or anything Coke like Coke pays that. a lot to be like... Um, yeah, so like... In, in movie theaters and stuff. Though, sure. Right? Yeah. And a big part of that. And they, they get... The Coke is in a lot of movie theaters and they're entitled to the last few seconds before you see your, your show. Yeah. It's a deal that they have with uh, National Cinemedia or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're in like an AMC or, or uh, Regal or one of those, you'll just before you see your feature presentation there's going to be that coke thing poured yeah, for you yeah. that's the kind of thing i think they're talking about they like to be associated with the world cup with the you having know, fun Good yeah time. they were big sponsors of uh what american idol right mm-hmm. like really? so you see those cups out yeah. there and stuff so they like to be associated with things that are kind of feel good stuff that the general public is yeah into. yeah that's interesting all right we can move on from economics to physics physics and Does this that come is, up a lot i mean maybe <laughs> okay. but this was an interesting one that i sort of like to think about it's called feedback loops Okay. And, um, you know, the way I actually, the simplest form of, of what a feedback loop is to me is you think about focus compounding, for example, mm-hmm. as more people contribute to the website, that yeah. just benefits everybody else that does, Absolutely. that comes to the website. Yeah. And someone writes a good post yeah. that, that isn't me, someone that, that is a contributor there for the a member. Then other people are like, oh, when they go to write a post, they want it to be as good as that one. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so then people are trying to top that quality and stuff. It's a good example that way. And, and people do that. And then they get value from it through the, the comments and things. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, a good positive. Have you ever read, um, what is it, The Alchemy of Finance, George Soros? I have not. Oh. Is that, a good one? Uh, if you're into feedback loops, I would read the George Soros one. His key concept is reflexivity, I think is what he calls the term. Yeah, I've heard it. Like, I've read about that term, but what does he say about it? <laughs> it's a little hard to explain. <laughs> Can you cite it? But, um, <laughs> no, I mean, he, it's kind of like the way to think of it in terms of investing is that he's the kind of person who'd be willing to buy into um, to try to make money on a, on a bubble on the way up and the bust on the way down. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? So like in the, whether it was like the go-go years, the like, um, conglomerate type things and stuff like that. Um, you know, he'd be someone who'd look at like Valiant or, or I had mentioned trans diamond, which is not Valiant, <laughs> but the same sort of roll up of those you things. You have to say those in the same sentence. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the kind of thing that like he would look like that kind of thing I think would catch his attention. Yeah. Certainly. Because then it's like, oh, there's something happening that will build this up to, in a huge way. And then there's also a thing that will eventually lead to a, a collapse of it. So that's what he talks about, uh, reflexivity. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, that's a good one. Next one for decision-making. Okay. And this is one that I use. Um, and Charlie Munger talks about this a lot. And it's checklists. Yes. The simple art of forming a checklist. Do you use checklists in your investing ever? 
not usually. No, uh, I said uh, I I do use did use it in newsletters. Actually, I was just asked this question on, on an interview that I just recorded. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so did he ask you to use checklists? Yep, exact same question. It's a very private question among value investors. I'd yeah. say, uh, in a sense, I use a checklist. It I comes guess, from Monish Pabarai. Yeah, I mean, you probably you've done. It you have so you read much. the book, The Checklist Manifesto? Mm, uh, yes, I have. It's a good book. Yeah, yeah it's a good it's book. It's an excellent book, and it's not just an investing book. It has yeah. a small section about investing stuff, but it's an excellent yeah book. Uh, a lot about medical stuff in there. Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, Monish, obviously, he talks about checklists a lot and, mm-hmm. and how that's been so beneficial to his career. So that's why I'm sure uh, probably a lot of value investors, that's why they talk about it. But I do think that, um, you know, it's good. I mean, airline pilots, as they say, they fly thousands of times in their careers, but they still go through the same, you know, basic checklist. And why Absolutely. do they do that? It's because the brain has blind spots. And of course, we're only human. So we could succumb to certain biases or you know, I, I whatever. Think, I think checklists are interesting, uh, are, are an excellent idea. The problem from what I did trying to put together a checklist is that most of the things that were mistakes that I made, if I, you know, did the things necessary to make sure I missed them every time in a checklist, yeah. I'd also miss out on some excellent opportunities that I had. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? If you say like, oh, a stock has to be trading under 10 times EBIT right. or has a free cash flow, it's like, well, you could actually miss out on so many different situations. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a good thing to look at that way. The difference with an airline pilot is the airline pilot can't have a terrific no, he, uh, flight. He, he's got to land it. He's got to land it. It either ends the right in the way. boring, usual yeah. way or not. Yeah, uh, boring is good, right? Yeah, so, so I think checklists are excellent that way, sort of checking on an idea after you know that there's upside and stuff that you study yourself yeah. i don't know how check- could, checklists could be really be used for for that part of it sure. seeing the upside yeah yeah and and when charlie munger talks about this he says sometimes if you get a lot of these mental models that sort of are going the same way mm-hmm. he it creates what he calls a lollapalooza effect where he yes. describes as two plus two can equal ten mm-hmm. um you know so like the next ones were i'll go over some business mental or business models or whatever and the way I think about it is I just kind of subconsciously am thinking when I'm reading about a company like, oh, do they have this? Or if I see it, I'm like, oh, they got network effects or they have right. X or they mm-hmm. got that. And and it could be you know pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, so which leads me to business models, um, switching costs, high switching costs. What do you think about that? Uh, Generally, probably pretty good. Right? I like high switching costs. I will say this. I think people think about them too rationally. Sure. I think of it as inertia, not high switching costs. Uh-huh. I really don't believe in the idea of high switching costs. Like if you ask people, even people listening to this podcast, people think they're very rational investors. How many times have you switched your bank? How many times have you yeah. switched your brokerage? How much would it really cost you? How much trouble would it really be? Sure. You, you could do what it takes in a day of all the inconveniences of it. How, how much is your time worth for a day? Yeah. You could probably make it back if you switch to a better broker or bank. You're not going to do it probably. Yeah. There's a certain level that you have to clear. It's like with insurers. Basically, when someone leaves an insurer uh, that they already that they're already a, a, a policyholder at Geico or Progressive or something, they leave because um, either they get married or there's there's some switch that way so people combine it that way, or they have a car accident or something and they get upset with the customer service. Yeah. That's how you lose a customer. Yeah. As long as you don't get an accident and you just keep sending in your premiums, you're not no, checking you it, about it, ha- yeah. what the prices are. Even though you, in many cases, someone could find an insurer that has a lower price and switch. Yeah. But it's the inertia there. And so sure. I think of it more that way, yeah. Do you think about like BWX with their long-term contracts as being high switching costs, even though obviously it's like a it's a contract, yeah, I mean, so it's a little bit differently. But we talked almost more like game theory things and stuff like that. Yeah. I actually think in the case of BWX and NACO that realistically their customer can't make a different choice. Sure. That they're wedded to it. Because in the case of um, the U.S. Navy, they have not made sure that there was a competitor who's still in business, right? Mm-hmm. So if they doubled the size of their program, and insisted that they split their business half and half, which is kind of what they tried to do with uh, with subs and what they do very successfully in some other businesses. Um, they ensure that two are competing against each other, mm-hmm. but they don't actually build enough 
uh, ships that need nuclear reactors each year to keep two competitors in business. So they kind of allowed it to become a monopoly. Yeah. And the case of uh, NACO, the the um, location, mm-hmm. realistically, if you have a mine mouth operation, there there's one su- supplier there for that uh, sure. power plant. Yeah. Good. And the next one, and this sort of when I talk. When I was saying how like sometimes two plus two can equal four, and when mm-hmm. you get a lot of these working in the same factor or the same you know congruent uh, matter, they could be pretty powerful. Um, talking about like network effects, obviously, yeah. I mean social media is so popular and everything else in our tech age. But um, you know, relating back to feedback loops, network effects is sort of what we're trying to create. Like for example, on our website, right? Mm-hmm. And as more people on there, it only kind of um, you know with scale, it could create a positive feedback loop right so those two sort of go hand in hand mm-hmm. uh, but when you think about like facebook or um you know really good examples like kind of like tinder at match.com yeah um or whatever other ones they have uh, as more as people think more people are on there more people are probably more prone to go there mm-hmm. and that obviously creates hopefully can, a positive feedback you can swipe loop. through more and more people <laughs> faster and yeah, faster no, right. and there's still some left hopefully it creates a positive <laughs> positive well you know the interesting thing is of course positive and negative both happen that way yeah so people don't don't talk about that as much but if an environment in a social media thing or whatever if there starts to be an unpleasant element there yeah and people start going after each other and, sure. and things that is going to snowball into being a very ugly yeah. situation for the same reasons that it can be uh, on the positive side too. Yeah. You know, it's going to come more of whatever the group of people are. If yeah, you have a not one good or the group other. of people, it's going to yeah. eventually become a, uh, seem like a worse place for all of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What about float? I think that's a good model to look out Float's for. an excellent model to look out for. Yeah. What do you think about? So like the way I think about float, obviously I sort of think about insurance mm-hmm. and how we all pay premiums, but they don't have to necessarily pay that premium out today. So they take that capital and can invest it and create more income. And obviously that's what made Warren Buffett so yep. obviously um, enormously rich. Yeah, I think about insurance. I think about ad agencies. I think about um I even think about renters. Renter. Like when you yeah. pay, when you do like a, a, a deposit or whatever, they have that, that money for mm-hmm. however long your lease is and they don't, necessarily yeah. need to pay that out or anything we have a good write-up on the website about um senior housing in uh, yeah. was it in new zealand i forget where it is mm-hmm. what, what country it is but um they, that's where they're getting float because of the, the business model that they have basically uh gets them to have money paid up front by the residents yeah yeah and it's a large amount in that case yeah last ones we're going to talk about which is sort of my favorite i think this is where okay. a lot of mental models come from is psychology psychology yep are you a psychologist Am I a psychologist? No. Have I'm you ever taken a class in psychology? I've never taken a class in psychology in my life. Yeah, me neither. But it's a lot of fun to learn, okay. right? The way that people, I always say the hard part of life, it's not a lot of, a lot of times it's not the decision make or the, the business problems. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's the, the human issue or it's the human the, problems. Yes, it's, it's dealing you, with individuals, mm-hmm. you know? And I always say like in, in business, for example, right? Two plus two always equals four. Mm-hmm. I know I just said that if you get a lot of Palooza, it could be equal 10. But right. in most situations, two plus two always equals four. Mm-hmm. When the facts change, change. I can't pronounce that word. When the facts change, what do you do? You sort of update your assumptions and then act accordingly like okay. that, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes with people, two plus two could equal four, could equal 10, or it could equal mm-hmm. negative 100. You right, know? absolutely. Um, so psychology is a lot of fun to to uh, to study. And, and there's a couple that I pulled that I thought would be really relevant. Okay. And the first one is do something bias. Yes. And that's people that's a huge one. feeling like they have to always do something. Yes. I mean, especially I think that's incredibly relevant in the investment, investment business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes uh, a lot of people, you know, you take like a manager, for example, who maybe they'll make maybe one or two new investments on the year. Right. 
but they're still getting paid by people to make investments. So maybe sometimes there's sort of a bias there to have action, which Absolutely. of course action or activity um, could maybe not be good for returns. Yeah, I always sort of think about when Warren would say, we're, or maybe it was Warren or Charlie, I forget who it was. He said, we're not paid for activity. We're paid for being right. Yeah. And I thought that was a pretty good one Absolutely. to go over. Yeah. And you have that a lot with people. They make a little money on a stock. They rack up the win by selling that one off, trying to find another one and buy that one. Yeah. Like in a bull market or something, you often have people selling faster, buying more because each one's up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really, if you think about it logically, that's sure. not adding up to anything, you know, if they're all going up. But obviously, yeah, there's a big drive for people to do something. Yeah. What about social proof? Okay. So talk to me about social proof. So I think about social proof, and this is probably not, so if there's any psychologists out there, maybe it's not the exact definition, (laughs) but when I think about it, I think of like strength in numbers, following the herd, Um, you know, feeling more comfortable because everybody else is doing it. Yeah. I I was just reading um, A Man for All Markets, and the author of that there, uh, Thorpe, Mm -hmm. um, talks about how he had, uh, in the early 90s, advised someone that uh, the Madoff uh, situation was a was a um, Ponzi scheme. Really? Yeah. And uh, and that's fine. That person didn't invest in it and stuff. But he talked to someone else mm-hmm. um, who he suggested, you know, you should take your money out that you have now and not put more in and stuff. He he did not listen to that. He put Uh-oh. more in and he continued to put more for clients in for the next, what, 15 years or Uh-oh. something until that, the scandal, more than 15 years until Good that Lord. scandal. Um, and he knew full well what he had explained to him about it and i mean he explained really clearly that there wasn't enough volume in the things that he's yeah. saying that he was doing i'm not we're not getting confirmations of the trade that it could be like he what he's claiming is not likely that he could do yeah um and so uh th- what his point was though is that that person he knew their personality and they like to ask people's advice and act on that advice uh-huh. but if they got 10 people and one of them who really had a lot of facts said Look, this is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And the other nine said, no, it's probably not a Ponzi scheme. He always went with the majority. Always. Really? And, you yeah, know, bit. and most of the time the majority is right about those things, the wisdom sure. of crowds and all that. But most really big, important ideas start out as kind of minority ideas. Sure. Right? There's Being someone that notices like the big short or whatever things. It's not a, eventually everyone notices it. Yeah. But first it's a small group of people. Sure. And sometimes they have a really good reasoned argument for it and you're not paying attention to it because they're a minority. Yeah. I think that's good. And that sort of falls in line with confirmation bias, I think. Okay. So like, talk to me about confirmation bias. Just, it's people having a tendency to seek seek information that already confirms their already existing beliefs. For me, that's obviously a big uh, totally. concern. That, I think it should be the other way around, if you think about it. Right? I mean, if you believe mm-hmm. something so, um, you know, to be so sure or whatever, I personally think you should want to hear the other side of it. Right. And I think when that comes to investing... If you're a bull on a mm-hmm. on a company or whatever, you should probably listen. If there's a short a short case to, you know, to hear them out, understand mm-hmm. what they're thinking, and then if you understand why they're wrong more than they do, clearly, then maybe it makes more sense to you could have more conviction or whatever. That's a really interesting one because I often f- found short cases for stocks that we're going to write up for the newsletter, and uh, sometimes I shared that with some people who are who are helping to research it, and it reinforced in some cases their belief in the bull case because it was a poor short thesis. <laughs> but my point was to think about this logically, I would say to them is, okay, you go into a courtroom, right? Yep. And you think that someone is uh, uh, not, and you think someone is guilty, but the prosecution comes down, they put on a really terrible case, right? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, the, how terrible them? their case yeah, sure. should be, shouldn't it make them, you think they're, they're more not guilty yeah. than what you think if they presented no case, right? But that does happen. I think that happens to people that if you read a short thesis and it's not very good, 
that in a sense can reinforce the bull thesis, which doesn't make sense. Sure. Right. Yeah. But that happens to people because they're coming out and they're saying, okay, I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to see what it is. And if it's not very impressive, then they may not. Uh, that, that just shows you how strong that confirmation can be there. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's good just to sort of be aware of these, you know, these biases and in, in these, mm-hmm. in these models and psychology to watch out for. So That's what do you really think is the most useful one for you, husband? Well, well, I was actually going to. Oh, you. I saved the best for last. Okay. Man. And this is a good model for life. Okay. This is save this the best is for last. This is good. <laughs> this is good relationship advice. This is okay. good life for investing. This is good for whatever. And and actually, I think um, I don't know if it, I don't know if they like Munger. I've ever heard them call it this. I mean, they okay. talk about developing this sort of mindset, but it's the punch card mindset. All right. Yeah. And I think that's a really good model for life. And the way I think about it is. Act when the odds are so heavily on your side, especially when it comes to investing. Right. Right. And if you think about it, you could apply that to a lot of areas of your life, you know, mm-hmm. and, and don't do stuff when you're not as convicted or you don't have a lot of the information or you don't maybe understand the short side better than they do or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a pretty good, a pretty good model to sort of think and live by. Yeah. Punch card is an excellent. Go for the no brainers. So. Have we explained what the punch card mindset is? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Well, Warren Buffett always <laughs> talks about investors could um, dramatically increase their results if they did the theoretical exercise before they're about to invest, that they had a punch card of, say, 20 investments for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And every single time that they made an investment, they had to punch off in a, a hole. So now if you may make one, then you know you have 19 investments for the rest of your some odd mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40, whatever year life. And he said that if, if students were to think about investing like that and sort of only act when you're heavily convicted, you'll you know, think a little bit differently about about which companies you would invest in and probably stay away from the ones that you're kind of like on the board about. Yeah, I, I may have mentioned something related to this on the podcast before, but sometimes people have asked me and they're like, I don't really have a lot of time to buy stocks or I don't I don't know a, a, a lot about it. I don't know accounting, whatever. Uh, so what's really your advice about how, how you'll make sure that you get a successful long-term result? And um, my answer is honestly, uh, and no one suggests this, as far as I know, this is not suggested as good investment advice, but here it is. Um, <laughs> Pause the podcast, people. Okay. Um, so uh, I would say spend all year trying to find a, an idea that you like, a real com- business that you like, right? Because yeah. you're not an expert on accounting and on things like that, that you believe is going to be successful for the long term. Take everything that you saved up that year and buy that. But then forget about it, and next year do the same thing again. Yeah. Some of those will go to zero if you're completely wrong. But the good thing is that you'll have. Um, uh, the, the good thing is that you'll you're obviously never going to go broke that way because you're not putting more into the ideas uh, initially than in a year. Mm-hmm. But also the important thing is you're not trying to do more than one thing each year. Totally. And and that so to so many people they're trying to make so many decisions about what to buy now. Yeah. And also like what should I be selling from before and whatever and. A small number of your decisions that you make are going to have most of the account for most of the successes that you have. I think that um, Charlie Warren has said, you know, that probably you know a dozen uh, ideas or something that they had accounted for a huge amount of the percentage return that that Berkshire's had over time. You know, sure. So a lot of the others they did okay. It's not that they made bad investments, but if you think about them, a lot of they made a lot of investments that wouldn't have outperformed the market, really. Totally. No. It's a few that paid off really big. Yeah, and I know? think that's a good way of doing it. And what I sort of do, I call it the punch card mindset. Yeah. I think about my grandma, Lily, who I know isn't okay. listening, but shout out to you. No, <laughs> she's not listening. Um, but I think about what I put, what I feel comfortable putting 20% or 30% of 
her money right. that she's in retirement mm-hmm. and, and is you know sixty some years old? Would I feel comfortable enough in an idea to put her money in that company where I'm going to see her at Christmas and Thanksgiving right. and talk to her you know mm-hmm. often? Would I feel comfortable? And I think that's a good mindset to do. So let's call it the grandma rule. Okay, <laughs> the grandma okay. rule, right? Feeling comfortable and most and convicted enough that you would put your grandma's money in it. Absolutely. Although we don't want to suggest to people that you should buy things that. Will not have any good return. Well, of course not. Yeah, yeah. we're we're saying I'm not the saying things that you yeah. think will have an excellent return too. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so so the grammar rule, the punch card grammar rule, the punch card grammar rule. Should we trademark that thing? <laughs> I think it's been trademarked. Now. Yeah, probably. Anyways, any other thoughts on the topic? Nope, that's it. I think it's a good uh, a good sort of a good introduction for people that do want to learn a little bit more about mental models. I think some good um, places to start is Poor Charlie's Almanac. That's an incredible book. Yeah. Seeking wisdom from Munger to Darwin or Darwin mm. Munger, whichever Probably it is. Darwin Munger Munger is old, but not yeah. as old as Darwin. <laughs> Amazing book. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think what else. Uh, just reading psychology books as well. That's a lot of fun. I read a, a psychology. The only psychology book I actually did ever read was um, Evolution. Gosh, I can't even remember now. It's in my office. Um, gosh, I, I don't even remember what the name Have is. Have you read Influence? That's Influence that, is good. That yeah, Munger recommends all the time. Yeah. Gosh, this is going to bother me now. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's just human... I don't remember. I'll put it in the show notes. Anyways, <laughs> check the show notes. But those are some uh, good places to start to uh, to uh, learn a little bit more about mental models, mm-hmm. which I think obviously is, is good to add to your life, but it's also going to improve you, your investing um, process just, as well. And just reading a lot about Charlie Munger. I mean, this is very associated with Charlie Munger. Yeah, totally. You're going to find a lot of discussion in this value investing community, and they're almost never going to say mental models without saying Charlie Munger. Yeah. So, Because so, uh, some people listening to this probably know a lot about Buffett and not about Charlie Munger. No, it's true. we act like they would know equally about these. Do people, people really not know a lot about them? Yes, really. Value investors know about Charlie yeah, Munger, but, but just, like, I guess other but, people. But yeah. some other, no, but Warren Buffett is incredibly famous. Sure, Charlie Munger is not. Yeah, yeah. I think he likes it that way. Yes, which is pretty interesting. He definitely likes it that way. Yeah, Warren sort of loves the the limelight and mm-hmm. he, he loves the shine, and and I think Charlie's okay with being on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. He likes it that way. Anyways, we want to thank everybody for tuning in. If you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memo that we do send out, go to focuscompounding.com, and there's a spot there for you to enter in your email. And if you do get on that list, you will receive a weekly memo from Jeff on an investing principle. Sure. I'm sure there'll be mental models in there at some point. Is there going to be? Uh, Have you ever read about mental models? I haven't used the term mental models, I don't think. No, but you talk about market power and everything. I talk about all sorts of things like that. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots of things that are mental models in there, yeah. Yeah. Like punch card type things? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you may just word it a little bit differently, but that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's that sort of thing. If you like this particular episode, you'll like those uh, memos, yeah. definitely. Anyways, we hope everyone had a great day. Hope you do have a good day, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.